recording? Have I missed that? Yeah, we are. Okay. Hello and welcome to Mistakes Were Made with me, Chris Slowly. And me, Frank Talbot. So it's the last in the series, Frank. So for this one, we've, we've kept it UK. We've got Nick Clay, equity income veteran, BNY Mellon, Morley, Red Wheel, RWC, same thing. And he, uh, he covers a lot of ground. I mean, we go back throughout his career, I would say. Co- covers a lot of ground and his, his big mistake... I really feel will resonate with a lot of people today. He, he's taken those learnings into today. Nice guy, very humble, um, great conversationalist. Really, really enjoyed listening to him. Yeah, he was great. And also, he was a uh, very relaxed, very relaxed atmosphere. I think there was a sort of, I was joking with you earlier, the sort of end of term feel. We are coming to the end of the third series. It was a good person to have in, lively, candid, good person to talk to. So I'm always guilty of giving away too much in this bit. So let's save it for the outro. So I'm going to keep this nice and sweet. Should we go straight into Nick Clay? Absolutely. Thank you for joining us, Nick. How are you doing? Very well. Thank you very much. Well, thank you for doing this. So let's not beat around the bush. Uh, what was your biggest ever investment mistake? How did it come about? How did you handle it? And what did you learn from it? Um, so when I knew I was going to have to ask this question, I thought, oh my goodness, there's so many mistakes I've made over the years. I don't know which one's going to be my biggest one. Um, but actually, it became really blindingly obvious. It was in February uh, 2000. It was when I was working at what was called Morley at the time, which was the Commercial General Union investment arm, uh, which is now obviously Aviva. Um, and it was when Vodafone bought management. Now, at the time, we were running UK equity money, uh, quite a lot of it from memory, about 22 billion sterling, I think. Um, and we were told by all our risk systems, obviously, because of the weighting of Vodafone in the benchmark, that we had no choice. But, but yeah, we had to sort of double our position in Vodafone on the management deal. And, um, and of course, yeah, we did, rather than push back and fight back uh, in the way we should have done. Um, we uh, you know, catowed to the risk systems. Uh, we, therefore basically doubled up our money. When you think about that assets under management I was talking about, that's a vast amount of money we were putting in. Uh, and of course, that was the basically the peak in the Vodafone share price uh, at somewhere around 500. Uh, and it's, I mean, it, as of today, um, if it was still held in that portfolio all the way through, it's down 73%. So it's, that would have been, that is a terrible, terrible investment. So how, how long after until you, you know, after it hit peak, did you, did you cut your losses? Um, well, uh, the hindsight point of all this is that, unfortunately, um, uh, you don't get a complete story because it was in 2000 when we finally resigned, um, or I resigned, quite a lot of us did, on the merger with Norwich Union. Um, and so that's when I started at Newton was in 2000 as well. Uh, in November, so um, so you never get the full part of that story in terms of you know what did we do afterwards and realised it was a mistake, etc. Um, and to manage the portfolio because we weren't in charge anymore after that point. Um, I mean, I think I think what's interesting about that question really is that, um, and it kind of reminds me of a book from Annie Duke, Thinking in Bets, and she starts her 
book with the same questions. You know, what has been your best decision this year and what's been your worst decision this year? And you base everything upon the outcomes. You know, your best decision is the one that went well and your worst decision is the one that went badly, obviously. Um, and she, you know, she points out with that um, that you, you're missing the role that luck has to play in things. Um, and if you, ba- you know, base all your decisions about what's good or bad based on the outcome, you'll end up basically having terrible processes that will ultimately make you very poor over the long term. And of course, that applies. She's the one of the most successful female poker players in the world. And it obviously applies to poker too. If you keep playing your poker hands wrong because you got lucky and won one, so you're going to end up losing all your money. Um, and so, you know, you've got to really think about what was the process that was employed uh, at the time. And the you know, harsh reality was there was very little process employed at the time. Um, you know, there wasn't a strong process. We were just backing ourselves up with. It was more... We're doing the work on the company. We're looking at the valuation. Do we think it makes it cheap? And then we've got a risk team overlaying that that's telling us what's causing the biggest risk in the portfolio. Um, and that's probably the two biggest learnings from that mistake is one, we needed a far more robust process to manage the money too, uh, which is something that um, I, I'm so uh, keen to ensure that we have today in what we're doing uh, on the Global Equity Income Fund. But equally, that, and this is something that hasn't changed, I would argue, is that you have to be able to push back on risk systems because they're constantly telling you, particularly at extremes, the wrong thing. Um, uh, and, and we've had that again um, happen to us in the portfolio, but this time, because of the experience, we're able to just push back and go, well, we're not going to listen this time around. I, when they tell you the biggest risks in the portfolio just happen to be the biggest stocks in the portfolio, um, but just by the nature of looking at it against the benchmark. Um, and yet history teaches you over time that when things get very big in the benchmarks, they generally tend to be the wrong price and they're not likely to be the ones that are going to outperform for the next 10 years. So it sounds it sounds like you've been pushing back recently, is that right? Yeah, so I mean, a more recent one was um, in, the, in our portfolio today is Qualcomm. Um, so it's fairly volatile. Uh, so risk systems don't like that. Um, it got to a decent-sized position of the portfolio. Um, uh, this was a few years ago whilst we were at Newton, um, and there was this outstanding Apple case um, hanging over it and that it was coming up to a judgment. And we were being consistently told that that stock was the riskiest stock in the portfolio and we needed to you know, massively reduce the position. And yet all the valuation work we did on it said that was wrong. The asymmetry of risk return was very skewed in our favour. So luckily we pushed back on it and didn't do anything about it because the court case came out in their favour. The share price went up a lot. But equally that didn't, you know, that meant because Apple had signed a six-year agreement with Qualcomm for their chips, it actually meant that their fan of outcomes, your risk reward was still very much skewed to the upside. And yet again, just because it was so volatile, the risk systems were telling us that you should be selling this thing. And and, and luckily again, we haven't. So um, that's the learning from it, I think. Um, you know, I can't say I've seen any learning in the risk systems themselves, but that's certainly the learning that we've managed to take on board from it. Do you think that's a benefit, though, Nick, of your experience, the fact that you have been through these situations? Because maybe younger managers might not have the confidence. I mean, some of the young managers I've met are certainly not lacking in confidence, but some of them might not have the confidence to push back in that way because they haven't been through these scenarios. They don't know how they might play out. Do you think the industry has a problem with that at all? Uh, I I think the industry certainly has a problem um, with retaining knowledge or long-term knowledge and long-term learnings. 
basically because you get turnover of people. Yeah, we're not doing this forever. Um, and, and you know, and I would say that was pretty um, apt today in the current marketplace, given how long this strange situation we've been in is going on. So, you know, since the great financial crisis. So um, I think that's true. I think having been through it uh, once or twice before gives you the confidence to push back, but push back in a way um, that at least then the risk team can understand too, by trying to explain to them the flaws of what the risk system is saying and getting them to understand that. And then they too can go away and kind of go, yeah, actually that does make a lot of sense. And maybe we do need to try and think slightly differently about what is the risk in the portfolio and what ultimately is, risk to the end client yeah and yeah the end client's risk isn't always in fact rarely i would argue uh relative to a benchmark risk it's more absolute in the sense and not losing money being inflexible at the wrong time these kind of things um rather than uh trying to run with the crowd and do what the crowd's always doing by you know benching yourself off a benchmark and always doing what the benchmark's doing you know and we've seen another great example of that in the last uh you know at the end of this year when the five biggest companies in the us were 25 percent of the s p which was harder than they were going into the tech bubble as if this time around we were more confident it was these five stocks which would take over the world rather than the five stocks that we thought were going to take over the world in 2000 um and you know and if you if you pay attention to that um, and you think that is risk, you are going to end up holding vast majority of your clients' money in those top five stocks at a time when, quite frankly, the risk rewards probably skewed more to the downside than the upside at that point. You know, and, and thinking like that, I think, is the most important thing that that taught me. When you spoke to us, uh, this is going back about five years, Nick, you spoke to one of my colleagues, and you, it was an interesting one because you talked about wanting, this was Ralph Lorenz, this is a, an <clears> odd example, but it's an example from history of actually wanting that rampant growth to slow down because there you talked about these stocks being perhaps overrunning, overheating, or people just being seduced by the fact that they were trading. Is there also, I'm not trying to get you to therapize the entire industry, but is there a problem with people just wanting to see those numbers go up and up and up without actually thinking what is fundamentally strong? What is long-term in a genuine sense? Um, Yes. I mean, I think the simplest way to say that is that, um, uh, people think you can just get rich quick these days and have forgotten that actually getting rich slow is probably the more achievable thing and something that certainly worked over the literally many, many decades. Why do you think that is? Why do you think they have gone so short term? Because of the financial crisis and because of zero interest rates and QE. Um, and, and so I think because you're in an environment where central banks have been pumping so many drugs into the market that it just goes up. Um, and and it's gone on for so long, you know, since 2008. And so back to that point we were saying about, you know, have people got the experience? You know, quite a lot of the industry have only worked in that environment, you know, which is that joke, isn't it? There's that joke about the fish swimming in the water and the old fish swims by and goes, you know, morning chaps, how's the water today? And the two other fish look at each other and go, what's water? You know, you just don't understand the environment they're investing in. Um, and that, I think, is very much... Uh, the majority of investors today, they think that, you know, even came up the turn the Fed put, for goodness sakes, as if that was one of their one of their mandates that they had with the market will never fall. And so that just means, and if you put interest rates down to zero, and you know, things start to go vertical and exponential, and then everybody believes that that's the way you can do things, you can get rich really quickly. Uh, and, you, and you tend to forget about uh, what history has taught you is a more credible way of trying to do things. 
you know, why that become, can become frustrating for us in what we're doing with the income portfolio is because we've got a sell discipline. Um, when stocks, we invest in stocks and then they go up rapidly in a very short period of time. Um, it doesn't give them the chance to grow their dividend during that period. And so we end up being a full setter of something that we quite like as a business. But the valuation just gets extreme very quickly. Whereas what we'd really like is a, a sort of a nice slow burn company that's still paying us a dividend, continues to pay through time. And that allows us to compound that over time. Uh, and that's our sort of favorable uh, investment we want to make keeps turnover low, which obviously keeps costs low for the client. Um, and it allows us to harness that incredibly powerful mathematical uh, eighth wonder of the world, as Einstein would say, which is compounding. Um, and But it is getting rich slowly. It is the tortoise way of doing things in an environment which literally until about the last few months, uh, everybody wanted to be the hare in the race. You, you mentioned people want to get rich quick now uh, and you also mentioned there's a kind of lack of experience being honest very few people were around last time we had these kind of structural moves going on do you have a view on the kinds of mistakes you think people are going to make now or have those mistakes already happened uh well i think a lot of the mistakes have already happened although i think we're only sort of halfway through that process and 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 what i mean by that is that you know a lot of people um, uh, put a lot of money in the market last year. I think flows into the US equity market were greater than the flows of the last 19 years combined, for goodness sakes. Um, uh, and obviously going into stocks where, I mean, there was almost no valuation parameter whatsoever. Um, and I think that's obviously what QE and zero interest rates have, have created uh a backdrop where valuation basically did not matter because if you discount back anything at zero, you can justify any price you like. So who cares about valuations? And it's not that's not dissimilar from the 2000 bubble where it was price per eyeballs and all this nonsense at the time that people were using to try and justify things. So I think we've had that first lesson, which is obviously a great number of those, particularly um, embryonic um, non-profit making stocks have fallen dramatically. But I still think we've got to go through the second lesson, which is that at the moment, all the narrative, and you, whether you're listening to it on the tellies or you read it, et cetera, is all about when are we going to get back in? You know, when do you buy the proper dip? And when's the bottom? And then, But they still talk about everything as the same. When do we buy back into tech? Um, and... Uh, Again, history will teach you that every, whatever led you into the excesses in the first place almost never leads you back out of it again the next time round. It's almost unheard of, I would say. And so, and yet everybody's mindset is, you know, when's the right time to get back into tech again? When's the right time? And I think that that's missing the point. And you need to think about what's the next thing that will sort of move this market on. Where would you think that is, Nick? Where do you think we should be heading then? So, I mean, I think we should, we're heading back to more normality, which is more volatile cycles again. I mean, we haven't seen a cycle, for goodness knows how long, which is terrible, quite frankly. I mean, this sounds like a terrible thing to say, obviously, because cycles are bad for companies and people because of unemployment, etc. But it is a natural thing that capitalism requires. You've got to clear out the, uh, the misallocation of capital that happens during a cycle. Because only then can you progress, evolve, move forward, and the stronger get stronger. And of course, you know, QE stopped that cycle. That's why we have, as 
I think it's the BIS or whatever it is who said that there's 15% of companies that are zombie companies. You know, they wouldn't normally be around. There's too much capacity. So I think we're returning to a more normal backdrop. Um, uh, and hopefully that's not just wishful thinking, because I think it would be the right kind of backdrop to return to for the health of the economy. Um, uh, but the biggest risk to all of that, I guess, is that we've built up so much debt during this period that can we even bring ourselves to to effectively wean ourselves off the drugs of QE? And can we suffer the rehab that we're going to have to go through in order to achieve that? You know, I have no idea how that ultimately plays out, apart from it's just a more volatile backdrop than we've been very used to, uh, which is just kind of how markets used to be. Uh, I was looking back into the 70s and how the market you know, moved, and it moved dramatically, so 40s and 60% kind of thing in an inflationary environment. That was very normal for that whole decade, for goodness sakes. And I mean, people would probably pass out, quite frankly, if we saw that on an ongoing basis in the current, uh, in the current uh, investment land drop, backdrop. So that's where I think we're heading. Um, but it remains to be seen if that's true, because ultimately we end up being behest to uh, particularly the Fed, basically the Fed, where the Fed goes, everyone follows. So if... Um, Powell and uh, and the rest of the Federal Reserve have the guts, I suppose, to return us back to normality and try and keep us there, rather than just capitulate again, uh, because it will get painful, undoubtedly, um, with this much debt around. Uh, have they got the guts to see it through to get us back to normal, or will they just try and return us back to the same old cycle? It's been quite a tough period in terms of income investing, Nick, because if we go back to the start of 2020, income was particularly hard hit. We saw a lot of suspensions or postponements or reductions of income payments, dividend payments. Are we back to normal there yet? How much of that journey has to be revisited? And also, we've talked about tech being an area that people are very much interested in. Income and dividend paying stocks tend to be from some of the less glamorous areas of the market, if that's not massively offensive. I realise this is what you work <laughs> on every day, so I don't want to make it... but. Do you think that those sectors are perhaps more likely to rehab better, if that makes sense? And and how long will they take to go back to any sort of long-term normality? So, I mean, I think what's what's been so interesting about the pandemic is um, how abrupt everything has been. So, obviously, it was an abrupt stop when we shut down the world, effectively, um, literally over the course of a couple of months. Um, and you're right, that was um, a, a particularly interesting period in the sense that no one's ever seen anything like this before, including the companies. Um, and, and therefore, not unsurprising, almost every company put, pushed the pause button to try and work out what on earth are we going to do. Um, and But equally, uh, we turned it back on again really quickly. Uh, and we opened everything up as quickly as we possibly could, and things came roaring back. Uh, whilst whilst in that intervening period, we you know poured an awful lot of that stimulus back into um, this time the real economy, not just the financial markets. Um, so everything sort of went down quickly, came back up quickly. Um, and what I find good about that is we talk about our companies that we invest in in our fund as companies that can suffer. That you know we're very aware that we haven't got us an inkling as to what the future holds and you know um and probably one of the biggest crimes of our industry is we talk in certainty as if what's going to happen and we have no idea what's going to happen so you think about a range of outcomes which includes a really bad one as well 
And you look for those companies able to suffer, even if it goes bad. And yeah, and we talk about that a lot. And then suddenly the pandemic came along and it finally provided us with a sort of evidentiary um, environment with which to prove if that was true. Uh, and it did prove true. I, by the end of the year, all bar two of the companies in the portfolio, I think from memory, had resumed their dividends. You know, the distribution on the year was down about 9%. It's a bit weird because obviously we we resigned during this period. You know, we resigned in March 2020. I was going to come on to that because I think in terms of something to skirt around ever so slightly, but in terms of big changes during that period, it seemed like an interest, interesting time to change. I mean, the world was changing massively. Yes. Can we, is it, it's not too much of a hard pivot? And Frank, I realise I've asked about eight questions in a row. So I apologise. Go ahead, Chris. But in terms of the decision to do that and the timing to do that, how did that come about? So for the listener, if you're not aware, which I'm sure you are, Nick and the majority of your team, the whole of your team? The whole team. The whole team resigned from BNY Mellon Newton and joined Red Wheel, as it's known now, RWC, launched equity income funds, stepped away from multi-billion pound portfolios to, to start again. Can we talk through that and how how that took shape and where you are now? Well, so obviously we could see the pandemic coming, so we decided we didn't want to manage money through that. So we thought, no, I <laughs> had no idea that the pandemic was coming. Um, yeah, we resigned at the beginning of March, and uh, you know, by the end of March, the whole world's in lockdown. Um, so we are probably literally the only fund managers to ever have li- genuinely being in the garden, as the government instructed everybody to be. Um, and so... Uh, I mean, it just added what I found was sort of fortuitous, basically. And you know, going back to that point, Annie Duke makes it's good to be lucky in life. Um, it was obviously quite lucky to have stepped away from the market at that point, because what it meant that we could watch it unfold with a bit of distance. Um, and I mean, I remember at one point seeing uh, a headline in the FT saying the end of quality income investing because, you know, dividends were being slashed by 50% in the UK, 25% globally. You know, it looked like companies, I mean, a typical, typical market behaviour of taking the now and extrapolating it forever, which is what seems to become a very strong trait in the market in the last couple of years since the pandemic. But there we go again, you know, quality income that's worked for hundreds of years, as many of the uh, academic research can prove, um, was that was it. That was the end of it. And that made me feel quite comfortable actually because I thought well you know you're ever going to get lucky to start again you might as well start again when everyone's given up on the strategy that sounds like a perfect time to be relaunching uh, a global equity income strategy and so it proved to be quite lucky for us um, and it and also enabled us just to stick back and see how the portfolio suffered how it fared throughout that environment and and also what were the disciplines encouraging us to do and when um, and it was nice to see that the discipline, so we have a buy discipline as well. You know, we can only buy companies that yield 25% above the market. That discipline forces us to be patient. We have to wait for good companies to fall out of favour before we can buy them. Uh, and of course, in the pandemic, lots of things I and mean, lots of good companies fell out of favour during the pandemic. And it was interesting to see which stocks were flowing into our opportunity set. And then actually quite quickly flowing back out of them again by the end of the year because of the extent of the rebound that we saw in the markets. So did you miss some opportunities in, in that period before you got back into the market yourself? 
Well, um, uh, well, yes, we would have missed some in the sense, in reality, with the, for the portfolio itself. Um, one of the small blessings, I guess, and it's only one small blessing, of being stuck in your garden literally for the whole of your gardening leave with nothing, literally nothing to do, <laughs> is you just kind of pretend you're still doing the job uh, to keep yourself interested more than the us. That's what I was going to say, Nick. How how much were you like playing along from home? Because I've heard like football managers when they're out of work, watch every game and analyse it for what they would be doing. How much were you sat with like pen and pad, scrolling yeah. the FT, looking at what you would be doing at that time? I was exactly the same. I was I was just pretending I'd never actually left Newton. I was still, you know, responsible for the portfolio. Um, uh, uh, and the whole team were doing exactly the same at the time, individually, obviously, but we're we're all as a team doing nothing else but that because there was nothing else to do so the question then is 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 would you have made a big mistake did you see something happen to think oh i've got to crystallize that loss (laughs) well we made well um we made uh we did make um we're very clear with our clients as to when we stopped having responsibility for the portfolio um and that was because um uh, that was the point that the, the the decisions of what was going in and out of the portfolio was taken away from us, rightfully so, because obviously we'd resigned. Um, but at that point, we were um, we would have made some trades. And looking back on those decisions, one of them would have been very good, which was to buy TSMC, um, and another one to buy Ambev wouldn't have been that great. It wouldn't have added to the performance of the portfolio at all uh, over the rest of the year, course of the year. Um, so, but. But that is what our process does. You know, not everything works immediately and certainly not when you've got that kind of backdrop. Um, uh, And as we say, we want our companies to slowly accumulate their wealth. So as long as um, as long as your investment thesis isn't just breaking down on you and your company is unable to suffer, you're able to wait and be patient for it to come right. Now, what the pandemic proved to us and we do this happens to us you know, periodically and you know, quite a lot of time when we get things wrong. It proved another one of the companies we got wrong, which was Coty. Um, and Coty is a cosmetics business. It had too much debt. It was just about to resolve that debt issue by selling a part of its business. Uh, literally, it went to have sold it in February. It obviously didn't sell in February. And then it barely sold at all thereafter, obviously, because of the pandemic. Which meant it went into that uh, that environment with way too much debt, and it could not suffer. I it cut its dividend permanently in the sense that it couldn't afford it, and that's why it needed to cut the dividend. And therefore, we have to admit that mistake, sell out of it, try and learn something from it, and move on. Whereas a whole host of the other companies, which put, put things on pause literally for a quarter, they had all the balance sheets and the cash flows to enable them to pay dividends. It was just literally they were taking stock of great uncertainty and to work out how to manage their businesses through that. And they all resumed their dividend perfectly comfortably by the end of the year. So you know, we were we were happy with the fact that only one company we got wrong, quite frankly, in that kind of environment. One thing we always ask is how much well, we ask you mistakes and you've given us lots of mistakes. Thanks, Nick. I think everybody, some people pretend they haven't made mistakes. Some people say the industry's made mistakes and they just happen to be in the industry, naming no names. But with the way that things have developed, what's been your best success? And I mean, without also massively loading the question, how much would be being out of the market in March 2020? Would that even be on that list or is there something else you would think of? Uh, no, I don't. Um, no, I wouldn't have that 
as up there as a success or achievement or anything. I mean, I think first we've got to have a bit of perspective. Things we're doing kind of fairly doing significance compared to what many people achieve in life. Um, but within my own little tiny little sphere and this industry, um, I actually think the biggest achievement is creating the team that I've created and and the culture and the environment for that team to be able to function at the level they do, to be able to prosper um, and to be able to give ourselves a chance of being able to do what we're being asked, which is solve problems, quite frankly. You know, every day we have to look at a company and determine whether it's good value or not good value, if it's wrong, if it's right. You know, we're being asked to solve problems. And um, and being able to do that in a repeating process again and again, uh, where you're going to get it more right than wrong, it's vital, I think, that you have the right supporting culture, the right culture in the team, the right um, uh, absence of blame across your culture, otherwise you're never going to learn. And so to have created a team where we all contribute equally um, from different perspectives, uh, we all own everything together, which allows us then to learn from those mistakes. There's no finger pointing at anyone within the team of those mistakes. And, and that everybody equally has their own voice and has their own say. And I think that is probably my biggest achievement because, you know, I joined this industry in 1991. Um, and throughout most of that time, you work in an environment, particularly as a farm manager, where you're put up on a pedestal and you're, you know, you, everyone says you're amazing. And, all this. and particularly if you're performing or you get something right. Um, and one of the things I think I slowly learned, unfortunately, rather than quickly, but I did slowly learn it over the years, was it's got very little to do with me as an individual and it's the people around me that matter most. Um, you know, I just, I'm not one of these people who uh, want to control and dominate and have a hierarchy, which is a very um, common model across our industry. Um, at, and to be able to create that within that structure, within an industry that favours the opposite, um, uh, I think has been quite an achievement. And then to have found a home like Red Wheel to support us um, and, and surround us with a culture that I think therefore makes it far more likely that what this process um, and philosophy has achieved over the last 15 years, that we are able to try and hopefully make it achieve a similar sort of thing over the next 15 years. And I think that's vital. Um, and so I think that's probably the greatest achievement, quite frankly. Excellent. I mean, I think that's a perfect note to finish on, Nick. Thank you very much. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you very much. Good to talk. Cool. So there we are, Frank. Nick Clay, we are doing this sort of fresh off the back. It's, if we were in the real world, he would have just left the room. So we are legitimately speaking just after having spoken to him. What What did you take away from that? <laughs> Which means we've done no... No prep for this uh, intro outro. Uh, I'm yeah, I, I've thrown I, it to you straight away. <laughs> I, t- I took a lot from it. It was interesting. He's kind of railing against uh, the a lot, a lot of what people are experiencing today with 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 technology stocks becoming the largest part of the index and and the kind of the benchmark hugging, benchmark aware mantra that would have been so successful for you over the last decade. Um, his his example of Vodafone when Vodafone hit ten percent and it was basically doubled overnight, so they doubled the stake. Of, really significant asset manager morley at the time i remember them they were you know the go-to uk equity manager 
So it is, I don't know Morley, if I'm honest. Morley, then Norwich Union, Aviva. Was that a massive deal? That was early 2000s tech madness. And it seemed like it was a huge thing that's had a huge impact for the way he then runs money from there, or at least the way he looks at risk. Because that idea of pushing back against what the risk metrics are telling you, he seems to have carried on for the next 20 years. Yeah, he's, he's probably a complete nightmare for the uh, the risk team. Uh, <laughs> him, him, him and his team. Uh, I thought it was really interesting what he was saying about, obviously, very fortunate in many ways to, to not have been invested during the pandemic. He didn't have that stress, uh, but he, he couldn't he couldn't leave it behind. Um, very forthcoming about possibly some of the mistakes. If, if only you picked up TSMC uh, in just before the pandemic started, it would have been an incredible decision to own that stock and far outweighed his, uh, his one that didn't go quite so well. Be interesting to see how his concerns play out because he was saying about the people who don't have the experience that he has, how that volatility is going to become more commonplace, how a lot of the managers who are operating now haven't been through such difficult times. He talked about the drug of monetary stimulus and the rehab that we're going to have to go through and how people like him, I mean, he's probably going to talk himself up ever so slightly, but people like him are going to be in a bit better position because they have dealt with this tumult before. They've had the 2000 crash, 2008 crash, but there's a lot of managers now. This is going to be the biggest thing they've seen. And it's going to be difficult. I mean, arguably, this is the biggest thing that anyone really active today in investment has has seen. Structurally higher inflation, monetary tightening, all coming at the same time. Most asset classes looking pretty unattractive all at the same time. Um, interesting you say about experience, you know, less than, or is it it's t- 10% of fund managers we track globally were active uh, in the great financial crisis. That's, that's not what it was called, but yeah. In the- <laughs> Oh, GFC, it fits. It fits those things. Um, and um, uh, yeah, this. But you go, going back to the seventies, it's just just a handful of names from those sixteen, seventeen thousand. Um, so I think being aware that you haven't seen a business cycle, that kind of whole notion that there's you know only ten percent of portfolio managers out there, but that were running retail money the last time we had a bear market or a re- true recessionary period, um, sort of sort of speaks volumes to the fact that very very few people are prepared for it. Well, that's a slightly scary note to end on because I was going to leave it there for the series. And, and I suppose, I mean, maybe it would give us a whole new crop of mistakes we made candidates for 10 years time of people who've gone through this period and had the worst experience they've ever had. But let's not plan that far ahead. I think we need to wrap up the third series first before we move on. So thank you very much. Thanks for listening. I've been Chris Slowly. And I've been Frank Talbot. And we'll see you next season series with Alex. If you have any guests, suggestions, ideas, people you'd like to see us grill in our own special way, please send it our way and we look forward to catching up with you later in the year. Mm-hmm.